following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain... Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Glad to be able to say this again. Please turn with me to the gospel according to Mark. Uh, The reason I'm glad about that is because we're returning to a series that we were in for several months after this church launched last February, and we were in that series from about February until Thanksgiving. And so uh, I have missed Mark. I've missed this journey through what is the most action-packed and briefest of all the Gospels. Mark is in a hurry to get to his central point, to expedite our encounter with his central figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just by way of background and context, uh, by way of reminder, Mark is writing in the mid-first century A.D., so 50s A.D. This is the earliest of the four Gospels. He's writing in the Roman Empire to a primarily Roman audience. And Mark, though he wasn't himself one of the 12 disciples, he was a very close associate of Peter. And so we can say in a very real sense that the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. And so much of it kind of bears the fingerprints of Peter's eyewitness memories. Uh, Mark, as we've seen, is broken up roughly into, uh, well, it's 16 chapters, but it's broken roughly into uh, the first eight, which focus on who Jesus is. We we saw that on page after page in the first eight chapters. It, It was a display, a showcase of who this man is. And then there was a turning point, a hinge, a pivot near the end of chapter eight when the apostle Peter confessed Christ Jesus as the Messiah. 
And that launched us into another journey that's going to carry us more and more under the shadow of the cross for the final eight chapters as we see not just who Jesus is, but ultimately and most importantly, what he has come to do. Here's what I think is the main idea of our passage this morning, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, the main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of this message. Jesus stands alone. Jesus stands alone as God's perfect man and man's perfect God. Behold his glory. Jesus stands alone as God's perfect man and man's perfect God. So behold his glory. We'll think about this in three points as we make our way through these verses. First, the display. We'll see that in verses one to three. Second, the declaration, verses four to eight. And finally, the descent verses 9 to 13. The display, the declaration, the descent. Look first at verse 1, the display. And Jesus said to them, that, that is his disciples, to his disciples and to the crowd, truly I say to you, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This isn't an easy prediction to understand throughout Christian history. Many suggestion, uh, interpretations have been suggested, and I'll admit I'm not 100% confident uh, what Jesus means, but I'm most inclined to see this as a reference to what immediately follows, the, the, the scene we're about to look at. And one of the reasons I think that is because it's not just Mark who structures things like this, but Matthew and Luke also place this prediction immediately before the scene we're about to look at, which I don't think is incidental. So verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. So that's his innermost circle of disciples. He, he took them with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's a blinding scene. You, you almost have to squint to, to envision it. And, and it, what's going on? Well, that word transfigured there, that's from the, the Greek word metamorpheo, from which we get metamorphosis. What we're staring at here is a unique moment in Christ's earthly ministry when his heavenly glory burst forth. In fact, in all his ministry up to the resurrection, you're not going to find a more dazzling display of divine glory. He is not here. He is not here functioning kind of like the moon, re reflecting back the light of the sun. No, he is the source of light. The radiance that, that you see here is originating and emanating from within, from within his divine nature, his godness. This is incredibly significant if, if you 
see and, and understand what's actually going on. See, Jesus' glory is not derivative. It's intrinsic. That is to say, it is not derived from some outside source. It is inherent to who he eternally is. As the author of Hebrews puts it in the very first paragraph of his letter, speaking of Jesus, God's Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or, as we confessed earlier in the service, along with Christians throughout the ages, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. In other words, the transfiguration is not just previewing the future, Christ's return in glory. It, it's also revealing the past, Christ's pre-existence in glory. The glory that he says in John 17, the glory he shared with the Father before the world began. I mean, we're only a couple verses in, but I, I hope you're already seeing that Jesus is very different than any other religious founder. They're not on the same playing field in various ways. I mean, think of all the other major religions and their respective founders. In various ways, they all pointed beyond themselves, away from themselves, to God or some other ultimate source of light and life and power, but not Jesus as the second person of the eternal Godhead, he possesses in himself more brightness, brilliance, glory than all the treasures and riches and natural wonders of the world put together. To limit him is to lose him. To lose him, that is, to be no longer talking about the real Jesus. To try to contain his glory is like trying to, to pour the ocean into a sippy cup. See, other religions, they, they have founders who are pointing to the glory of God. They point to the glory of God. But Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the glory of God in human form. As the theologian Michael Reeves beautifully and simply put it, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. I don't know what your perception is of God, but the Bible knows nothing of a distinction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, or God, the Father who has one disposition, one way of doing things, one way of, of going about running the universe, and God the Son who has another. No, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus because he is one unified being, one unified being in three persons. So we could say that in his incarnation, Jesus veiled his glory. In fact, we do say that. We sing that at Christmas, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He veiled his glory, but he did not void it. And what we see here in Mark 9 
is a unique pulling back of the curtain to enable Peter, James, and John, and through their eyewitness testimony, you and me to behold the blazing glory of God in the person of his beloved son. Now, I realize this story is really bizarre. Like this, this is fantastical. This is the kind of thing that feels like it's the Bible's version, you know, kind of an ancient version of, of Star Wars or something. I mean, you, you may be thinking if, if you're skeptical toward the Bible, toward the historical reliability of the Bible, you may be thinking, man, of all Sundays for me to come, <laughs> of all stories to have to hear, this is among the easiest for me to dismiss as non-historical, legend. But friend, might I submit to you that the logic actually cuts the other way? I mean, think about it like this. Is this the kind of story that the earliest Christians would have made up if they didn't worship Jesus as God? or if they were trying to concoct some believable hoax. I don't think so. If you know much about first century Jewish culture, if you're trying to convince people and win people to your cause, I don't think the way you're going to go about it is to say, hey, you know your national heroes, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets? Yeah, they've been totally eclipsed by our carpenter from Nazareth. See, counterintuitively, I think the bizarreness of this story actually gives it a ring of authenticity because because otherwise I just don't see how it would have been a natural or convenient thing to make up and insert. Sometimes modern folks assume ancient people were were just kind of gullible, right? Ancient people, pre-scientific age, they just had a way of kind of finding miracles around every corner. But notice here, Peter, James, and John don't react by saying, huh, our rabbi's glowing, of course. No, this was not ordinary. Miracles, by definition, are not ordinary. This wasn't just a figment of their imagination it left an indelible impression on their lives. How do we know that? Because nearly 40 years later, Peter is still referencing it, still looking back to this event as having a decisive effect in his life. Flip back to our scripture reading on page eight of your service guide. Second Peter chapter one. He's Speaking for himself, roughly four decades later, he's speaking for himself and for James and John when he writes, starting in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories. So even right there, he's anticipating a skeptic's objection. He knows this sounds crazy because it is crazy. And so he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice 
We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, just just think about what Peter, when he wrote this letter, and what those earliest Christians in the Roman Empire were enduring, knowing that they were going to face extreme opposition, extreme persecution for, your faith, for their faith. How kind of the Lord was it to give Peter, James, and John this singular experience, this glimpse of divine glory that would carry them through some of the darkest of times? Now, if you're thinking, well, that's great for them, but I don't have a transfiguration experience. I mean, I can see how that helped them, but what about me? I've never gotten to ascend a mountain and see the transfigured majesty of my Savior. Peter anticipated that very feeling. Look at what he says next. Verse 19, we're we're still in in the scripture reading, page 8. We also have the prophetic message. So he's not finally saying you need to rely on transcendent experiences. He's saying we also have the prophetic message, that is the scripture, as something completely reliable, not less reliable, completely reliable, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you hear the echo there of the psalmist? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, Peter is saying, brothers and sisters, the Bible is your burning bush. The Bible is your mount of transfiguration. As God's sufficient word, you have everything you need. Your Bible is sufficient, and it's even more reliable because it's not some momentary experience. It's with you all the time. Cling to it like a lamp. Rely on it, Peter's saying, and live in its light, the display. Number two, the declaration. Verse four, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So the scene gets even crazier. Now we have not just a glowing rabbi, but two towering Old Testament figures. And they're not just famous, they're symbolic. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Standing next to Jesus is the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament in embodied form. And remember, we're on a mountain, which is not a random detail when it comes to these two guys. Because they both had epic experiences on mountaintops. Moses, when he received the law of God at Sinai, and Elijah, when the Lord Almighty appeared to him, not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but in a whisper. And of course, after that Sinai encounter, Moses was so shining with the reflected radiance of God that he had to cover up, he had to veil his face 
so that it wouldn't blind the people of Israel. And that was just reflected light. That was the moon reflecting the light of the sun. And the glory was too much for mortal man to handle. See, when that happened to Moses, it was the initial answer to a prayer he prayed. Exodus 33. God, show me your glory. And the Lord responds and says, well, I can't show you my face. No man can see my face and live. But I'll, I'll, I'll pass by. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'll pass by and let you just see my backside. Show me your glory. And that prayer that Moses prayed 15 centuries later is still getting answered as he stares into the face of the dazzling glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Remember, who, who is Mark's information source for this gospel? Peter. So you can imagine As Mark is writing, verse 6 is the moment where Peter looks at him and is like, look, Mark, I didn't know what to say. (laughs) What Peter proposes here is three shelters, three tabernacles, same word, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, one for each of their heavenly presences. He's trying to be helpful. He wants to honor these amazing figures. He can't believe he's in their presence at once. Moses, Elijah, along with Jesus. But his gesture of respect does not elicit the response that he expects. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them. So what, what does that make you think of? Again, we're meant to see that this is a new Sinai experience, a new Mount Sinai. A cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I've mentioned before that if we, if we want to read the Bible wisely, if you want to read your New Testament well, then you've got to read it the way you would an article online that has a bunch of hyperlinks, things that you can click, which open up a separate window so that you can dive deeper. And one of my jobs as your pastor is to help you see over and over again that your New Testament is pervasively hyperlinked. So let's briefly click on both of these phrases that the Lord thunders out of the cloud. First of all, This is my son whom I love. Turn with me first to to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, roughly in the middle of your Bible. This was a coronation song that uh, when an Israelite king took the throne. And in verse 6, this is what we hear. Psalm chapter 2. Verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So again, you have royal imagery and you have a mountain setting. And then the king speaks. Verse 7, 
I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He, the Lord, said to me, you are my son. There's that phrase. You are my son. Today I have become your father. But, but we can actually back up even further because Psalm 2 is actually just advancing one of Scripture's oldest themes. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was created and installed as a royal son of God. And when he and, when, and Queen Eve, when, when they failed to obey God, everything in the universe began to splinter apart. Now, fast forward from the Garden of Eden and, and the fall into sin, several centuries, God raises up Moses to deliver the Israelites out of grinding oppression in Egypt. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 4. Look how God instructs Moses. Look at the language he uses. Exodus 4, 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Adam is a son of God. Israel is a son of God. Now turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a, a load-bearing chapter. You, you, should, you should know when you hear, if, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect this to ring a bell, but if, if you're a Christian, when you hear 2 Samuel 7, that should ring a bell. That should not sound unfamiliar. 2 Samuel 7. I'll show you why it's so vital. God is swearing a promise to King David and in the middle of verse 11, 2 Samuel 7, 11, we read this. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. That is a dynasty for you. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So it's, it's talking about Solomon, his son, Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house that is a temple for my name. And now get what he said, get this, get what God says next. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, I'm now looking beyond Solomon because this covenant promise is eternal. David, there will be a king from your line, from your lineage, who will sit on the throne forever. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Which is why in Psalm 2, which we looked at, in Psalm 2 verse 7, heaven's words of coronation thunder to the king, you are my son. So Adam was a son of God who wrecked his vocation and dropped the royal mantle. 
Israel was a son of God who wrecked her, royal, her vocation and dropped the royal mantle as well. David and all the kings after him were sons of God who wrecked their vocation, just like Adam and the whole nation, and dropped the royal mantle. And so in Mark 1, at the baptism of Jesus, and here in Mark 9, we arrive at this dazzling scene on the mountain after centuries of wreckage and failure and sin. And it is no small thing for us to hear these words thundering from the cloud. It is no small thing for us to hear the words, this is my son whom I love. God's saying, here is the one they were all pointing to. Israel, Adam, Israel, David, all of the kings. Here is my eternal, divine, only begotten son who has taken on flesh and picked up that royal mantle and who will never, ever drop it. This is my son whom I love. Now let's click on the other thing that the Lord thunders from the cloud. The other phrase listen to him. Listen to him. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Moses is conveying a promise to the people of Israel as they're standing afraid on the edge of the promised land. He's looking beyond his own death, and he says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And then what does Moses say about this future prophet? You must listen to him. And now, centuries later, you can turn back to Mark 9, centuries later on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you see what's happening? Moses is not only getting to hear his own words quoted, he's getting to see the very one he predicted. Deuteronomy 18, the final prophet, the ultimate revelation from God Israel is coming. Be patient, long for it, wait for it, expect it, live in light of it. The final prophet is coming. And when he does, listen to him. Mark 9, he's here. Listen to him. And this is why all along in the gospel according to Mark, Jesus has been saying things like, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, it would have been right around now when the disciples, when, when, when the meaning of this would have started to dawn on them and they would have been disoriented. I mean, th- this would have rocked them to the core. I mean, they, they would have been thinking probably something like, we had a high opinion of Jesus. <laughs> In fact, we've lost friends and family over our opinion of Jesus. No one in our lives has had a higher opinion of Jesus. And yet somehow, it's still been too low. 
sure enough, verse 8, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. They looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Stars in the night sky are spectacular. They're giant, luminous spheres of plasma made of burning gases, and they shine brilliantly. On a clear night, you can see thousands of them. But there's a reason why, if we walked outside right now, we wouldn't see any of the stars. And that's because the ultimate one, the sun, rose this morning. It is risen and is outshining them all. And what occurs every single morning when the sun causes the stars to disappear has happened in the spiritual realm. That's what verse 8 is about. The law and the prophets, poof, gone. All that's left in their place is the fulfillment. As Jesus himself declared in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Peter, there's no need for three tabernacles. There's, there's no need. We appreciate the intention, but there's no need for three tabernac- tabernacles because your rabbi is the tabernacle, the temple, the ultimate meeting place between God and man. The only one remaining on the mountain in verse 8 is the prophet to end all prophets, the priest to end all priests, the king of kings and lord of lords. And here's the application. Don't you dare try to place him on equal footing with anyone else. There is no guru with his wisdom, no prophet with his courage, no priest with his compassion, no king with his power, and no friend with his love. Jesus Christ is without peer. That's why more books have been written about him, more paintings drawn of him, more more songs written to him, more lives given for him than any other person in human history. I mean, just think about it like this. It's been observed that in human history, there are not many people who have managed to found a major religion. It's a, it's a small, select group of people who have managed to, to found a religion or set the, 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 the course, the trajectory of life and thought for centuries. It's a small group. Jesus is in it. On the other hand, there are a fair number of people throughout history who have claimed to be divine beings from another world. Okay? So you, so you have this really small group of people who have set the course of life and thought for centuries, who have founded a major religion, and you have this larger group of people who have claimed to be God. Do you realize that only one person in history is a member of both groups? Only one person in history has claimed to be God and managed to get people to believe it. See, history is is filled with people who have done one or the other. 
except for this carpenter from an obscure backwater in the Roman Empire who backed up radical divine claims with the most compelling human life, not only before his death, but also after, which is why some two billion people around the world this morning are worshiping him as God. No one holds the place Jesus holds. Friend, if you have, this means that if you have a kind of Mount Rushmore approach to spirituality, and Jesus is just one of many faces that you are content to revere, then you haven't looked carefully enough at his claims or his life, not to mention his death or resurrection. The most important thing you could hear today, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is that you need to listen to him. You need to listen. Oh, you need to obey the words of God thundering from the cloud in Mark chapter 9 and listen to Jesus when he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. And if you turn from your sin this morning and place your trust in Christ who died in the place of rebels and rose to give them eternal life, then the Bible promises that you will be saved and restored to a right relationship with the God who made you. See, Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of, of divine glory as it kind of burst forth in a moment. But if you're a disciple of Christ by faith, then the day is coming when you will see him in his beauty. You will behold him face to face. And in a very real sense, you too will be transfigured. You will shine like the sun in the sky. As the apostle John, who was on the mountain, says in 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. This is why our, our uh, call to worship at the very beginning of the service on page four was Psalm 34, verse five. Those who look to him, that is to God, are radiant. Think about that imagery. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This is relevant to everyone, but especially to you, teens, young people. Do you know what that verse is saying? True beauty is found not in how you look, but in where you look. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. The display, the declaration, and finally, the descent. Verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain. So just imagine the, the dialogue going on at this point after that ultimate literal mountaintop experience. Peter, why'd you say that thing about the shelters? I, I don't know. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, did, did it occur to you to not say anything? No, exactly, it never does. But seriously, then the conversation would, would move beyond the ribbing and, and move toward, but, but can you all believe what we just heard and saw. 
as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is not the first time Mark has reported this kind of instruction. It's not that Jesus is afraid of people finding out who he is. It's that he doesn't want them to misconstrue who he is. See, many Jews at the time were expecting the Messiah to be this kind of political freedom fighter. And even the disciples didn't yet get it. They got half of it. They loved realizing that their rabbi was actually the long-awaited Messiah, but they hadn't fully reckoned with the path of suffering that lay ahead. They hadn't yet come to terms. See, even, even if they were connecting some of the dots and saying, okay, Adam dropped the royal mantle. Our nation, Israel, has dropped the royal mantle. Even the great King David and and the kings after him have dropped the royal mantle. They hadn't come to terms with the fact that for Jesus to carry that royal mantle would entail carrying a Roman cross. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, what's going on with this? It's okay if if you're a little confused. (laughs) Didn't Jews expect a resurrection? Didn't they have a category for resurrection? Why are the disciples so befuddled on this point? Why does it say that that they're discussing what rising from the dead means? Well, to answer the question, did they have a category for resurrection? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Remember when Jesus tells Martha that her dead brother Lazarus will rise again? She doesn't jump for joy, assuming he will do it as he ends up doing just a little bit later. No, she responds to that with a sigh. And what does she say? Yeah, I know. He he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, like all Jews, she believed in a general resurrection at the end of history. But no Jews not Martha, not Peter, not James, not John, no Jews at the time were expecting a single resurrection in the middle of history. Even the most devout believer wouldn't have imagined that one person could be raised before the end of time. Which, by the way, is one of many reasons why I find the resurrection of Jesus historically plausible, because no one was expecting him to be raised. Jews didn't even think the Messiah could possibly die, much less get up again. This was inconceivable. This was an inconceivable thought, unless it actually happened. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It's obvious why they mention Elijah. They, they just saw the guy on the mountain. But, but they're asking about this, this widespread belief based on how the Hebrew Scriptures ended. Last two chapters of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4, even more specific, very last chapter of the Old Testament, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So for 400 years, the, the Jewish community had been anticipating the coming, the return of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. 
verse 12. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. He's saying Malachi's prophecy has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. That's, that's why back in chapter 1, remember, we encountered John in the wilderness wearing weird stuff and eating weird stuff because he was stepping into that prophetic expectation, embodying the ministry of Elijah and functioning as a forerunner for the one whose sandals he said he wasn't even unworthy to stoop down and untie. And, and John the Baptist had one sermon, if you remember, just one sermon, Israel, turn around, make a U-turn. <laughs> you need to repent and come back and be cleansed. And how did things go for him? How did things go for this bold, eccentric, wilderness prophet? He got his head cut off. And Jesus says, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished. Well, in conclusion, look at the question Jesus poses. Look again at the question he poses at the end of verse 12. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? What is he getting at with this question? He's drawing a parallel between John the Baptist's fate and his own. See, throughout this series, I have uh, contained myself. I, I, have, I have displayed uh, great, uh, great self-discipline in not taking you to a lot of parallel accounts in other gospels because I want Mark to speak for himself. I want, Mark, I want to read Mark on his own terms, but I'm going to break my own rule because I can't resist pointing out one small detail that Luke adds for us. When Luke reports that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are conversing on the mountain, he actually tells us the topic of conversation. Luke 9.31, they spoke about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Do you know what the word departure is in Greek? Exodon. It's the word for Exodus. That, that is, Jesus was discussing with the law and the prophets his own death and the new exodus it would accomplish, not from Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, but an exodus from the ultimate deepest bondage of sin, Satan, and death. See, for all the breathtaking brightness of this story in Mark chapter 9, it ends on a dark an ominous note. Eternal glory is coming and the, the transfiguration previews it when King Jesus will split the skies and return to make all things new and to usher in his kingdom. But not yet. The dazzling, radiant future, that dazzling, radiant future is not possible. It's not available if the king is not first nailed to a tree and buried in a borrowed tomb and raised in resurrection life. Jesus Christ is too spectacular to be placed among 
other wannabe gods in your life. Don't confine him. Don't confine Jesus this week to some kind of pantheon of your own making. Because if this passage teaches us anything, friend, it's that the throne of the universe only has seating for one. Let's pray.